Welcome back to another edition of the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. My name is Michael Cravens and I am your host. And I am particularly excited about today's episode because, well, anyone who knows me knows I really enjoy cooking wild game. It's something I put a lot of effort into and take a lot of pride in. So today's episode is with none other than the Hank Shaw. If you don't know who Hank Shaw is, well, you should. And after listening to this episode, you will understand why. He has a great deal to offer the the outdoor chef or the outdoor cook. Uh, anyone who wants to take full advantage and make the most of their wild game. So we are going to walk you through the tools, techniques, tips um, on how to care for and prepare and cook your wild game. So stick around for that. Before then, let's go through a few announcements from our great conservation organizations here in Arizona. The first one is from us here at the Arizona Wildlife Federation. We are going to be working with the Arizona Game and Fish Department, along with a coalition of other conservation groups from Southern Arizona, to remove barbed fence from an area frequented by mule deer and other wildlife. This event is March 10th, 11th, and 12th, and you are invited to join us and help out. We have several miles of barbed wire fencing to cut, drop, roll, remove from the site just west of Tucson near Three Points Junction. The project is expected to take at least three days. The location is just under an hour's drive from Tucson, so we'll meet each morning on site. You can sign up to work one, two, or all three days. If you're interested in participating on this project and helping us out, or if you just have questions, please email our Volunteer for Wildlife Director, Trika. Trika can be contacted at trica at azwildlife.org. Next up, we have another one from us here at the Arizona Wildlife Federation. Our Becoming an Outdoors Woman camp is April 29th through May 1st. Uh, This is open to 18 and older, and it is not a sales pitch when I say to you this fills up fast. Everyone who has contributed to, participated in, or attended this program very much values it. It is a very popular program. So if you're going to register, do so fast. You can do that at www.azwildlife.org forward slash B-O-W. Next up, uh, the Arizona Game and Fish Department's 2022 Outdoor Expo is set for this April 2nd and 3rd. Us here at the Arizona Wildlife Federation will be there, so we hope to see you there too. Come by our booth and say hello. Number four, from our friends at Southern Arizona Quail Forever, they are celebrating Earth Day on Friday, April 22nd, I'm sorry, April 22nd, by having a volunteer day, building rock dams at the Coronado Monument. Location is southwest of Sierra Vista, and you can contact Jim Littlejohn with your questions. Jim's phone number is 520-490-1374. All right, number five. Uh, I'm excited about this one, and I will be in attendance. The Arizona chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, um, along with the Grand Canyon chapter of Trout Unlimited, are holding a pint night 
at Mother Road Brewery in Flagstaff, March 2nd, that's this Wednesday, at 6.30 p.m. Again, I'll be there, so please come out and say hello. We'll have some pints, shake some hands, maybe tie some flies, and talk conservation. Um, these things are always a blast, so I hope to see you there. Finally, the Arizona Game and Fish Department's commission meeting is set for March 4th in Kingman. These meetings are open to the public, but with COVID restrictions, sometimes venues fill up. So you can also watch these meetings at www.azgfd.gov forward slash commission cam. Or you can also listen in by calling 404-397-1516 using access code 280-046-234-POUND-POUND. I encourage everyone I know to attend these meetings. If you are vested in Arizona's wildlife, habitat, and outdoors, it is your duty to be educated on how, the hows and whys and the science behind wildlife management in our state. Uh, this information is available and this is where you get it. So tune in, um, be the smart guy, be the guy out there spreading around factual information because Lord knows there's, there's enough other information out there that's not always accurate. So yeah, take advantage of these opportunities and they are long all day meetings, but they are interesting. You can also find the agendas for these meetings so you can pick out the parts you're particularly interested in and just listen to those as well. Either way, attend, it's important. So that's it for our announcements. I hope you enjoy this, this chat with Hank Shaw and I hope you learn a lot. I certainly did. So until next time, thanks and take care. Welcome, Hank Shaw, to the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's the end of hunting season for the most part. I like to consider it the start. Um, I uh, I just returned home last night from a javelina hunt, uh, successful, thankfully. Uh, but I was up late last night uh, processing that animal and getting it in the freezer. But uh, I like to think of it as the start of the hunting season. But for most of the folks around the world, it is the the end. But hopefully freezers are full. And I figured it would be a good time to have you on to talk about uh, what folks should do with all that, that meat they brought home. Sure. Happy to talk about it. Awesome. I'll tell you what, let's start with an introduction. Um, I'm going to do my best to introduce you because I've been following you and, and benefiting from the work you do for a number of years now. And I think I can get pretty close and you can just fill in the holes if that works. Sure. All right. So we have Hank Shaw. Uh, in the world of wild game cooking, there there's a lot of fantastic wild game cooks out there, no question about it. But Hank Shaw is kind of the center of that universe. Um, and I don't think that's debatable uh, by anyone. Hank's got a platform, and I, we would call that platform Hunt, Gather, Cook. Is that correct? Sure. The website is Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook. Got it. But through social media channels, it's all Hunt, Gather, Cook. Okay. And where does honestfood.net come in? <laughs> uh, so that's... So I started that website in 2007, and it initially did not cover solely wild foods. So 
um, thus the honest dash food. But the easiest way to get to that website is to type in huntgathercook.com. Got it. And this, this website is used by me, um, you know, at least weekly, um, all my friends and colleagues uh, utilizes it well. Um, there's no collection of wild game recipes at that level in anywhere in the world that I know of. Um, I don't believe there's any uh, a larger list of wild food recipes in any language anywhere on the internet. Yeah. And, and I'll add that it's exceptionally done. It's very Thank professional. Um, I know Hank's wife is a wife, common law mm-hmm. wife. More or less. Holly? <laughs> Holly's a yes. fantastic photographer. Um, she is. So there's just wonderful images of all this food uh, there as well. Very well thought out instructions, directions, recipes. And I know at least for your books, which I, I assume most of the recipes on the website come from, uh, those are tested as no, well so by they, normal so folk, right? One of the things that well, the short answer is yes, but the uh, one of the things I do with my books is I make sure that at least fifty percent of the recipes in the books are not on the website, because uh, the intention is if if you follow the website closely, and then you buy a book, it's it's a different set of recipes. So I wanted to give people who buy the book a, a reason to buy it, and not just go online. Right. Uh, and yes, every every single recipe in every single one of my five cookbooks has been tested by a normal human because um, as opposed to a chef. And it's important for that because if anybody out there has ever written a text message where what you wrote is not what the recipient read, you know that that can be a problem. Right. (laughs) So, so it's important for what I write to be what you read, especially when it is a recipe for, for something that you can't just go down the store. Like you can't, you can't go to the, to the supermarket and buy javelina. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll, I'll add that while there are plenty of fancy recipes on there, um, well, let me put it this way. You know, I, I, I know how to treat a piece of wild game. Um, but you know, I, I'm a hunter who, who likes to take full advantage of the meat I bring home, but that does not mean I'm, I'm a, I'm a wild game chef or, or even an exceptional cook. Um, but, but I do try uh, and I, I do pay attention to details and follow recipes as well. And, and I will say that way back in the day, and even still today, a lot of times you'll get into recipes and there's ingredients that you just, you don't, you don't know what they are, much less where to find them. And while, while your recipes have some of that and some, some real fancy stuff, if you want to take it to the next level, there's some also, you know, uh, down to earth, normal folk, um, you know, comfort food stuff on there too. Yeah. And, and also it's extremely important for me to do two things when I present a, a recipe that may be out of your comfort zone. One is to, to tell you exactly how it ought to be made in the country or culture that makes it. And that's important because I want, uh, say a Mexican to look at a Mexican recipe that recipe that I do and say, yep, that's right. And, I also want you to be able to do it if you live in Flagstaff or or in Des Moines or or someplace where there may not be as many uh, Latin markets uh, around you. So I'll provide you know much more easily accessible substitutions uh, so that everybody can make the recipe. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and that, that's appreciated. It has been appreciated by me, and I, I know it, it's appreciated by a lot of other folks as well. Um, all right, so outside of the website, we've also got the Hunt, Gather, Cook Facebook page, and um, that that's a great place to just go hang out, see what other people are doing. Um, again, I, I feel like it is it is that center of the universe when it comes to social media and wild game cooking. Um, but I've certainly enjoyed it there. And it's, it's the wild game Borg. So resistance is futile. (laughs) (laughs) The it's, it's got 25,000 members of this private Facebook group and you have to answer questions to get in. And and what that does is that allows, uh, allows us to really have good conversations about working with all sorts of wild foods. So Mm -hmm. we have everything from mushroom hunting vegans to guys who shoot 15 deer a year and, and there's no politics and there's no drama. And uh, it's one of the rare spots on the internet where people are just there to get smarter. Right. I was going to compliment you on that. It, it is one of the few places that there's just not much well, drama or politics. Um, and we all know there's plenty of that everywhere else on Facebook. So it's nice to have a place. Um, you know, I would it is say... the, the only time that happens is sometimes on weekends, somebody like starts drunk Facebooking and, <laughs> Well, and then I have to swing the band hammer, but, but a, co- a couple of times I've like, I, I've whacked somebody and they'll send me a direct message of like, Hey man, I'm sorry. I just got <laughs> divorced or I was really drunk and I, I'm sorry. I flew off the handle and I'll usually let him back in. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, you, you do a good job there and you're very well balanced moderator. All right. So moving on from there, we have my favorite part of what you do, and that's your cookbooks. Um, I'll, I'll admit I've got every one you've written, um, and, and I dearly love them. I've got a collection of cookbooks in my kitchen on display, and yours are dead center. Um, you want to fill us in a little bit about your books? Sure. Uh, I wrote my first one. It's called Hunt, Gather, Cook. In tw- well, I wrote it in 2010, but it came out in 2011. And since then, I've written four beyond that. So Hunt, Gather, Cook is the first. And then um, because duck and goose hunting are kind of the core of what I do here, I, I live in Northern California, which is a big duck hunting region. So the, the second book I came out with was Duck, Duck, Goose, after the nursery rhyme. And it is about all things uh, waterfowl. So ducks, geese, uh, coots, cranes, that kind of thing. Um, and that book came out in 2013. And then um, my next book is, is all things antlered, kind of horned and antlered. It's uh, venison. So it is called Buck, Buck, Moose. And that covers, you know, all of the North American uh, big game animals pretty much. It's because in the kitchen, you know, the sort of the, the, the spoiler alert in the kitchen, all forms of venison react the same. So even though there might be texture or size and flavor differences, um, a recipe for a, a deer roast is can be done with a, a moose or a pronghorn or, or a bighorn sheep. So I did that one in 2016. And then in 2018, uh, pheasant quail cottontail came out and that is the small game book. And that, that book is really, really close to my heart because uh, while I love deer hunting, um, I deer hunt to put meat in the freezer and I, I do small game hunting um really the whole rest of the hunting season. And and that book is one of my all-time favorites. And then the most recent book is Hook, Line, and Supper. And so Hook, Line, and Supper, as you might imagine, is all things aquatic. And it covers freshwater and saltwater fish, as well as seafood. 
And that one came out last year in 2021. It was going to come out in 2020, um, but as we all know, the 2020 was kind of a lost year for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and then last year was kind of half a lost year for everybody, but uh, we just put it out anyway. And so it's that one's still kind of fresh in everyone's mind. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll add to this. The, these are coffee table quality books. Um, not only are they informative, but again, the photography is amazing. They're beautifully done. Um, and yeah, if, if somebody out there has been, been putting these off, uh, I would suggest not doing that. They they really are exceptional. There's nothing else out there like them. I mean, I should say there's some other good cookbooks. Actually, most of the really good ones I've gotten have, have come from suggestions from you. Mm. But yeah, your, yours are great. If I had to pick a favorite, and it's it's tough because I use all of them. Um, Duck Duck Goose is amazing every time I, I bring home, which I didn't hardly bring home any waterfowl at all this year. But last year, I, I utilized that book a lot, and I enjoyed it every time I cracked it open. Um, I was going to say, good for you as an Arizonan. Well, <laughs> man. It's like you and Jonathan O'Dell and like two other people I know who have ever shot a duck in Arizona. Yeah, it, it's not my <laughs> fault, though. It's because I have a couple buddies that are hardcore waterfowlers. And that's the thing about waterfowl is if you're going to be good at it, especially in a spit state like Arizona, you got to be fully committed. And I'm not. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, ho- Holly I also, and I are super committed. Yeah, I love squirrels. I love elk. I love it all. So I, I can't invest everything into waterfowl. And I feel like that's what it takes. But lucky for me, I know a few guys that that are committed like that. And that's the only reason I kill any ducks at all. There you go. But that's a great one. Um, buck, buck, moose. Of course, I, I use that a lot. Anytime, you know, we have an elk in the freezer or deer. Or, I mean, you can even take it into the realm of bears and javelina. Mm-hmm. Um, anytime I have a big whole animal like that, I, I utilize that as well. But I would say if I had to pick a favorite, it would be pheasant quail cottontail just because I love small games so much and the variety. That book is so much fun to write because it covers all all of the small game, everything from fur bearers to all the upland birds and all the small mammals. And and it's funny because you've heard of the North American big game slam, which is, you know, all Mm -hmm. of the, the big game animals in North America with a season and a bag limit. Well, I am less than a dozen species away from the North American small game slam. Um, I believe I'm one of three people to have the squirrel slam, uh, Jonathan O'Dell being one of the, one of the others. And I think the, the head of fish and wildlife in West Virginia has also oh, shot. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought you and John were it. Uh, no, no. He thinks the, he thinks the guy from three. West Virginia. Okay. <laughs> so I've shot all the quail. I've shot almost all the grouse. I'm still missing the willow ptarmigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I suppose if you wanted to include the Himalayan snowcock, I'm missing that one too. Yeah. Um, um, I've been, there's a couple of rabbits and then that's about it. Wow. I, <laughs> <laughs> well, for what it's worth, Hank, um, I very much admire that and look up to it. I might, I might be a part of a very small audience, but I think it's really cool. I like to zig what other people zag. There you go. Jeez. So that Himalayan snowcock, um, it's caught my interest, and I'm thinking about doing it like a family backpacking trip where I set low expectations and just try to enjoy the trip and hope for one. But that's one way to do it. Yeah, uh, I know myself you, you, too, though, and I'm not good at that. I, I go all out when I get excited about something. You kind, I mean, I, I, you could do it that way, but I, the guys I know who have succeeded have treated it more like a sheep hunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
they're an interesting bird for sure. And well, I definitely, I sing the praises of native species all the time. And I certainly place the most value on them. You know, you, you get the occasional interesting critter like that, that just, uh, it kind of speaks to you, you know, and the place it lives and you just want to go chase only it. in the Ruby mountains of Nevada. That is correct. Yep. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll tell you what, do you, do you think we did a pretty good job of covering the work that you do? Sure. More or less. Okay. Maybe we should have saved that for last, but you know, I want folks to know who they're talking to here, who they're hearing from. So I, I want this to be, you know, somewhat instructional for, for people. Um, you know, I, I'd like to try to reach out to new hunters and I like to try to speak to folks that don't necessarily uh, hunt, but spend a lot of time outdoors and, you know, build those bridges and, and, and lines of communication, if you will. So I, I want this to be somewhat instructional as well. So, you know, keeping in the theme of your books um, and segueing off that, uh, do you mind if we go through kind of each of those groups and, and talk about, you know, how we how we take care of those animals and, and how we prepare them in the kitchen? Sure. Fire away. Right. We'll tell you what, let's let's start with the big stuff. Let's talk about, um, you know, whole animals, whether it be a deer, an elk, a sheep, a javelina, um, a pig. However, you know. I guess I'll lay down kind of like how I see it. And then you correct me. Um, we can actually start with a universal truth and then go from there. And that universal truth is this until you're really experienced with, with cooking game, the, the single biggest problem that people, that people have with, with all forms of game, no matter what it is, is that they cook the tender parts too much and the tough parts too little, which is to say, I find that people will overcook backstrap or overcook breasts mm -hmm. where they don't need to. And, and they undercook legs and wings and other parts because, and, and then, then claim that they're inedible. So, um, that is, it, it's a unit. That's one universal truth that people just need to remember mm -hmm. is that if you're dealing with a backstrap or a breast or some, the, a tender part of an animal, undercook it. Because you can, this is leads to the second universal truth, which is that you can always cook something more. You can't uncook something. So if you're if you're um, if you're if you have stage fried, if you've never seen this piece of meat before, if you do, if you don't want to mess it up, undercook it because you can always fix that. You cannot fix overcooked meat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think a lot of us learned that the hard way. Uh, you know, growing up as a kid when Hell, we oh, we overcooked every part of the deer, um, and then when we did overcook the parts that needed overcook, we didn't do it right. But you know, we would take take those back straps out, and I, even as a kid, we called the back straps tenderloin. I don't think mm -hmm. I knew what the tenderloins were, and I would, for the record, for everyone out there, the back strap is the loin it would be the ribeye on beef, and the tenderloin is underneath, and that would be the filet mignon. Right. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, yeah, those tenderloins come out, you know, ideally, you know, after you field dress that animal, you, you take all mm -hmm. the insides out and then those tenderloins are almost kind of loosely attached up under the inside of the back. Mm -hmm. You can really sometimes easy. pick them out with your fingers. Yeah. 
but I, I like to get those out pretty quick because if you leave them sitting there, they kind of, I feel like they soak up a lot of that blood and discoloration, kind of like a sponge. So I like to get them out and get them cleaned up right away myself. And even if you, they don't, if you've been very clean with it, um, they're such a small, thin piece of meat, even on a very big animal, like an elk or a nilgai mm-hmm. or a moose. Um, they, they, if you, if they form a rind, uh, you know, because you've dried it for a little bit, you lose quite a bit of meat yeah. and they're just not that big. So I, I, I too will pull them out very right. quickly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's going to be really hard for me to not go off on, on, uh, into rabbit holes with this. Cause yeah, <laughs> so to speak. There's, there's already things coming up. Like, you know, when aging meat, it's something I haven't gotten into because I don't like wasting it. You know, I, I don't like cutting that rind off and throwing it away. Um, I, I know there's benefits. Um, I just haven't gotten into it myself because I can't bring myself to do that. <laughs> I mean, the short version is um, if you do it correctly, the waste is minimal. Yeah. And you only dry age cuts of meat that you intend to eat rare or medium. Um, there's nothing wrong with dry aging other parts of the animal, but there's no reason to. Uh, so the difference in between a 21 day aged shoulder that you're going to braise the hell out of and a fresh one isn't terribly, it's, it's not very different. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, there's see that. sure this is slight different, but why, that one, you don't get a lot of benefit where you get the benefit uh, is from the, the back straps and the, and the hind leg roasts, which you tend to cook like roast beef. Huh? So, well, here we go down that rabbit hole. So when I envision somebody dry age in a hunk of meat, it's in my mind, it's a rear quarter hanging in a, a cold rustic shed up in the mountains. Um, mm-hmm. I realize maybe that's not that accurate, but that's what I see in my, in my mind's eye. I, I mean, I would say the only modification to that is I would take the shank off and hang it from the, 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 uh, I don't know, for lack of a better term, the ball at the end of the femur and then hang that just the, just the actual thigh as you were right where, cause the shank doesn't need to be aged, but the thigh does. Yeah. Th- well, that's where I was going. All those muscle groups in that thigh are not necessarily, well, maybe they are after dry aging are not necessarily conducive to a, a nice, you know, rare steak on the grill. So every single one of them is really okay. Yep. Because if you practice what I call seam butchery, well, it's not really what I call it. It's just what it's called. Um, it, so when I take apart a hind leg of anything, really anything from a antelope jackrabbit on up in terms of size, you can separate the individual muscles in that hind leg of a deer, a moose, a, a pig, uh, whatever, into their own roasts, just like you would a, a cow. Mm-hmm. So you've got an eye round, you've got a sirloin, you've got various other roasts and, and virtually all of it is, is clean enough in terms of no internal connective tissue that you can then cook that medium rare and enjoy it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, the only, the only part that really gets a little bit complex for lack of a better term is, is really the kind of the chuck. Uh, or the sirloin, uh, right on top of the ball joint. Yep. So like the top of the animal's butt, basically. Um, everything else, I will separate muscle by muscle. And and there's very detailed instructions on Buck Buck Moose on how to do this, by the way. Um, and so that you get these beautiful individual roasts that you can then age or not, and then and then cook so that it's exactly like a roast beef where the interior is medium rare. Okay. Now, is this a common practice for you? <laughs> for me, yeah, and increasingly for other hunters because um, I don't claim to invent it. Um, it's it's a, a system of butchery that's existed for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And some in some parts of the country, that's just how you butcher a deer. Right. And, and in others, it's alien. So it, it's I find it superior because it, it gives you uh, the biggest problem with so something like a leg steak where you just hack through a, a hind leg, you know, bones and all or, or just or go across muscle groups is you end up with meat that really wants to be cooked medium rare or medium with sinew and connective tissues that just will not break down unless you pot roast it. So, and I, then if you pot roast it, a hind leg pot roast tends to be dry, a little chalky, mm-hmm. whereas a, a shoulder or a neck pot roast is, that's really where it's at. Yeah. Like pot roast yeah. is for shanks, shoulder and neck. So that, so you get this problem with the hind legs of deer, of elk, pigs, and anything where this should be cooked like a, you know, just, just to it until it's done rather than hammering it. But people hammer that back leg and it's okay, but they do that so they can get through that connective tissue. Well, you, you solve the connective tissue problem by separate each individual muscle mm-hmm. one by one. Yeah. that That's how I've always done it. Uh, and I will say when, you know, I bring an elk home, I've got a tiny little kitchen and I'm butchering it. Basically I have the quarters, um, you know, and the back straps and the ribs all, all in coolers. And I usually start with the back straps because I, I don't want them getting that rind necessarily. Um, but by the time I get to the end, uh, you know, it, it takes me days to get through an elk, you know, in a small kitchen. I work all day. Then I work all evening on processing that animal. You'll get better. I can do a nil guy or an elk in probably, I don't know, three hours. No kidding. Wow. You just get good at it. It's just practice and, and you just keep doing it yeah. and doing it because you know exactly where to put the knife and know exactly okay. you're, you've got a mental system. And actually what's interesting is once you get that mental system, um, sometimes it's helpful to on the drive home or wherever sit and think about, do I want to do anything differently this time? Mm-hmm. Because you can get yourself into a rut with, oh, it's always the same roast. And it's always the same this or that or the other thing. And then along comes a recipe that you really want to try, but you don't have the right cut for it. I mean, sure, you can go to the supermarket and buy one, but I don't live like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, can I ask you this? Because uh, it's something I struggle with. I have, a, I have, some might say, an anal retentive personality. Um, how much effort do you put into putting up really clean, pristine meat? I mean, I, I don't like washing my meat, um, although I do often. Um, if, if I can cut it off the animal and everything is beautifully clean, that's how I like to put it up. But rarely is that the case, you know, we're, we're cutting these animals up out in the field and you get dirt and, you know, as careful as, as you try to be, it's still going to happen. How much effort do you put in? I mean, I'm anal retentive about cutting off little bits of silver skin and just making sure everything's perfect when I put it up. Well, there's clean and there's clean. So hair, dirt twigs, all of that gets, gets cleaned off. Mm-hmm. And water is only your enemy if water gets above 40 degrees for a long time. So washing your animal or whatever is perfectly fine as long as you then pat it dry or wipe it dry and then get it cold. Okay. Water breeds bacteria and the bad kind of bacteria if it stays above 40 degrees for any period of time. Gotcha. So that's, that's just a safety issue. But um, in terms of silver skin... I will take there, there's two kind of layers of silver skin. There's the kind of the the webby, gushy, you know, f- kind of fluffy silver skin that's that that you see. That that all goes away. Okay. Incidentally, I end up putting that um the, the way my system works is is as I'm working, I just did this with a nil guy a couple of days ago. 
Um, and the, the silver skin that I removed goes onto a sheet pan that's behind me. I, I, my kitchen is 67 square feet, so it's, it's tiny. Um, and so all of that silver skin and the trim, as long as the trim's not gross, you know, it's not covered in guts or, or blackened or mm-hmm. whatever, whatever. Uh, as long as it's not gross, gross, it, it gets turned into stock. Okay. So there's this pile that's stock. Then there's going to be a pile of kind of gnarly, perfectly okay, but kind of gnarly connective meat, like bits. That goes in the grind pile. Then the kind of weirdly shaped larger pieces that are relatively clean, that goes in the stew meat pile. Mm-hmm. But in none, in none of these cases uh, will I be incredibly anal retentive about removing silver skin because the the fact is when you thaw a piece of meat, the silver skin comes off a thousand times easier. Okay. So it, it also does present a, a layer of protection should your vacuum sealer mm-hmm. break seal and it helps against um, freezer burn. Gotcha. So I remove it before I cook it, sort of. Like I don't if it's a shoulder or a neck or shanks because it's just going to melt anyway. But if it's a if it's a back strap or a roast or something that's going to be cooked not, not braised or, or cooked for a long time, yeah, the silver skin goes. Okay. All right. So I guess back to the basics. I mean, we are on track as as far as we're talking about, you know, mostly large, large animals we take apart. Um, In a nutshell, you know, I I would lay it out like neck, front quarters. Those are are slow braised taco meat, chili verde, um, you know, fall off the bone type of recipes. Uh, back straps are typically steaks. Those rear quarters, um, steaks and roasts. Shanks, uh, again, slow braised, fall off the bone uh, type of recipes. Am I on the right track there? With one exception. Okay. Um, in very large animals, like big ass mule deer or elk or moose or nilgai, um, you can cut a, a what's called a flat iron steak out of the shoulder. So if you can imagine a scapula, mm-hmm. you know, the shoulder blade of the animal, uh, there's a, a, uh, a flange that comes right in the center of it. Well, actually it's not in the center. There's, it's sort of tipped forward. Yep. So there's a thin block of meat on one side of the flange, and then there's a wider block on the other side. Mm-hmm. So from that wider block, you get the blade roast. It's, it's, it is the muscle that nestles into the, 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 well, if you're looking at it from the outside, the left-hand side of the, the flange. So it's towards the back of the animal. Mm-hmm. That's the blade roast. On a very large animal, um, you can separate the, the meat from, there's a very thick, tough line of, of sinew right down the middle of it that you can fillet off the meat from the top and bottom of that very heavy sinew that's the flat iron steak. And and those are some of the most delicious tender steaks on an animal, but, but the animal's gotta be big enough to make it worth it. Like it's like a regular, especially in Arizona coosier, it's just not worth yeah. it. But, but once you get to a larger animal, that's a very specific cut that uh, is absolutely worth your time. Interesting. And I have instructions on how to cut it on Hunter Angler Gardener cut. Awesome. I know exactly what you're talking about, but I've not done it. Um, but I certainly will now. So, you know, here in Arizona, uh, having javelina season wrapping up today, I believe, as we're recording or tomorrow, um, you know, there's a lot of misconception uh, surrounding those animals. 
Um, I've never eaten a piece of javelina meat that wasn't just mild and delicious. Um, a lot of folks here will kill one, take it to the processor, and have the whole thing turned into chorizo or snack sticks. I've never, I've never ground a piece of javelina, and I've enjoyed every one I've ever brought home. Um, can you speak to that? Sure. I mean, there's nothing. First of all, there's nothing wrong with grinding. Um, if that's how you like to eat your animals, go for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the important thing is that you're eating them. Uh, the second piece to it is a javelina biologically is a new world, kind of a new world pig, which is to say they're not terribly closely related to actual pigs, uh, but they have a common ancestor quite a long time ago, mm-hmm. like a long time ago. So they are kind of an example of convergent evolution in that they are what the new world's, the, the new world needed a pig and it created a peccary. <laughs> And, and there's two kinds and one lives in the United States and that's the collar peccary and that's the javelina. So the cool thing about him, as opposed to his friend, the pig is that he is a a vegetarian, almost as almost an obligate vegetarian. So they've been test after test after test and you will never get trichinosis. At least there's been never a case of trichinosis from javelina meat, which, which is not the case with, with wild hogs. So the the advantage of eating a javelina is it's actually, even though they, they have got that scent gland kind of in the small of their backs, which gives them a bad reputation, the meat is actually cleaner than that of, of wild pork. Mm-hmm. So uh, I routinely will cook those back straps um, just medium, medium to medium well. So quite pink in the center, still cooked through, but quite pink in the center. And it's fantastic. Um, the... You know, the, the classic cases of like cochinita pibil, which is a, a Yucatecan recipe mm-hmm. where you basically slather an adobo on the four le- uh, the forelegs and, and just slow cook them in banana leaves. That's it, it, amazing. And so, I mean, I think, um, I, I think that there isn't really a huge animus against javelina among the hunting public, except in, in Texas. Yeah. So Texas, they're treated like vermin. And I, I, for reasons I don't understand, um, everywhere else, like Mexico, South America, and Arizona and, and New Mexico, they're treated like the game animals they should be. And effectively, you're right. They're basically white, clean, mild pork. Actually, unfortunately, in New Mexico, um, and, I, and I know the New Mexico Wildlife Federation has been working hard on this to change it, um, assuming that they haven't changed it yet. But there is no wanton waste law surrounding javelina in New Mexico, from what I understand. And that, that's a real shame. Really? Yep. See, everybody I know who has hunted them in New Mexico, they hunt them because they love eating them. Yeah. Could be just be who I hang out with. Yeah. Yeah. You're probably hanging out with the best of them. But, uh, but yeah, you're right. I, I think the tide's turning. People are changing their minds. You know, the hunting community, unfortunately, is, is really bad about spreading around misinformation sometimes. Yes. But, uh, I dearly love them. Uh, I think they're a blast to hunt. They're an amazing animal to watch in the field. Um, you know, and yeah, I mean, I'd shoot a half dozen a year if I could. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, they're, I like them better than wild pigs. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking to that, how I understand it is, you know, javelina in the family to suidae, um, you know, feral hogs or swine are in the family suidae. Those are our old world farm pigs. 
And I very blatantly and adamantly refer to his javelina as New World pigs, because um, technically their closest living ancestor, you know, on that evolutionary tree, they connect not terribly far back to Old World pigs. Mm-hmm. And how I understand it is they both made it to the Americas at one point, but for some reason the Old World pigs didn't didn't continue on, and javelina did. Oh, they're one of the Pleistocene animals that didn't make it. Yep. That's, that's how I understand it anyway. But, and I'm also really glad you spoke to the trichinosis issue because while Hank, you have never failed me. Um, I have questioned that when I've heard you say it, cause I have, I just, I have a hard time imagining a javelina coming across the nest of baby birds or maybe uh, something that's died and not just chomping it down, but I have no evidence for that. So I, I can't refute you. Um, and I think I'm going to try a, you know, a medium rare backstrap or maybe a medium backstrap. Um, I would say medium, I just because the, anything lower than medium gets to, you get into a cultural thing. Like, yeah. um, if uh, you could eat, you could eat, you know, pheasant tartare if you felt like it, mm-hmm. uh, or, and in Japan they eat raw chicken yeah. and nobody dies from it. So, but it's just, we have a very strong mental block and including me, I don't like rare pork. Yeah. I like pork that's not cooked to hell, but there's a difference. Well, so um, there's a difference between safety and what we we like to think of as delicious. Yeah. Like I said, I, I have no um, no reason to refute you on that. And I'm sure you're absolutely correct. I just uh, I've seen, you know, back in the Ozarks, what what a group of feral swine um did to a deer they found. And it was just gore and blood. and They just oh, chomped I mean, it up. The night after the first battle, the first night, uh, the Battle of Fredericksburg in Virginia in the Civil War, there's innumerable stories of the hogs coming in and eating the dead and dying. Oh, yeah. yeah it's pretty horrible. Yeah. Wow. Well, with all that, javelina are fantastic animals. Um, and I would recommend anyone, um, you know, you, you don't have to turn them into trees, though. They're, they're delicious just the way they are. Um, and there's so many things that you can do with them. So, all right, I guess for the sake of time here, let, let's move off of our, our large animals. Um, I get, well, maybe one more question, if you don't mind. Sure. You know, here in Arizona, we have a lot of big backcountry areas where you can't necessarily get vehicles into. So a lot of times you're you're cutting up an elk or cutting up a deer out in the field and you're bringing it out in pieces in your backpack. Um what what kind of tools do you carry in the field or would you carry in the field for, for processing an animal out there like that? Uh, just really just three, um, a really good handsaw. Um, I use a, uh, outdoor edge scalpel blade mm-hmm. and no, they're not sponsoring me or anything, but I happen to like that one because I, I tried the Havilon years ago yeah. and, but they're, they're too fragile and they snap too easily. They do. Um, the outdoor edge, uh, has a nice backbone to it mm-hmm. so that, um, you can skin and gut and cut apart an animal. And then if it gets dull, you can just replace the blade, which I find really, I like it. Right. And so people just use regular skinny knives and that's perfectly fine. Yeah. And then the other is, uh, game bags. Absolutely use those, those kind of, uh, muslin game bags. Mm-hmm. That's really all you need. I mean, yeah. I mean, paper towels, I would, I would probably, uh, put a, a roll or, or a bunch of paper towels in my backpack to kind of pat dry, really bloody spots. Yeah. That's an interesting idea. 
Uh, my my basic kit is I use a scalpel blade knife, but I, I use the Taito. Um, mm, I really like those one. replaceable blades. But you're right, the scalpel blades do break. And the main thing with those, those man, you got to be careful. It's easy to cut yourself, especially when you're, you know, up inside, you know, cutting away uh, the wobbly bits and things. Um, with cold hands and you're tired, uh, you know, you can really hurt yourself. Then uh, I also carry a small, lightweight fixed blade knife with a with a stouter blade for cutting through joints and things. Um, game bags, of course, I think are extremely important. Um, I usually take a couple pairs of latex gloves, um, not not because I'm scared of of you know blood and fluids, but because you know it's it's nice not to be completely disgusting out there in the field. But uh, that pretty much covers it for me. I, I don't take the saw, although I've regretted it on several occasions. I've wished I had one. Um, I just can't talk myself into the extra weight. I mean, it's a handsaw, dude. It weighs like three ounces. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, it's, it's a backpacking thing. I, I'm not talking about like... Into pounds, you know? Uh, I don't know. I also <laughs> like... I, it's, no, it's not going to... Because you also need a handsaw to cut firewood sometimes. So. Yeah, there you go. It's it's got more than one use. Yeah. All right. Let's let's talk about some small game. Um, you know, sure. try to move through these pretty quick. But uh maybe uh let's start with your what you know people envision when you say small games. That's squirrel, rabbits, things like that. Um what what's what I guess to keep this simple, what do you like to do with those? I mean, I find um virtually all of them I will I will brace or or slow cook mm-hmm. because um, the only, uh, members of those two groups that, that you can consistently fry without doing something beforehand are desert cottontails and young of the year squirrels. Yep. And it can be difficult to tell a young of the year squirrel versus an older squirrel and squirrels can live for years and years and years. So, um, generally if you're going to fry them, the idea is to really to fricassee them, which is to to say um, either braise until tender and then fry, mm-hmm. or fry and then braise until tender. So that's actually really what a fricassee is: is that you you like you buttermilk fry something and then cook it till it's tender. Hmm. It's an old French and Southern trick, but um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I've seen things like you know squirrel buffalo wings, which is kind of a nice idea. Provided again that you that you braise the the leg first yeah, and then sort of, yeah yeah and then sort of buffaloize it right um, and it's my opinion that you'll lose something there maybe it's in my mind but to me there's nothing better than young of the year squirrel fried and then make gravy with your drippings and it just it takes me back to you know a place of my childhood that was wonderful. Um, and, but sometimes we do still fry squirrel, older squirrels, and we'll uh, pressure cook them first or braise them first. But I, I feel like you'll lose something there. I, well, maybe. But like if you shoot squirrels like with any kind of regularity, how many young of the year kits are you going to find? Like well, one out of ten? Back east, we have yeah. the early seasons. Um, and, and you shoot a lot of them. But uh, out out here in the West, I, I haven't found that. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, I've had Western gray squirrels that took three hours to get to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm just not going to mess around with it. <laughs> and same thing with jackrabbits. I mean, the yeah. only part of a jackrabbit that I don't cook slow and low is the backstrap. Mm-hmm. 
and you can actually get really cool uh, backstrap, boneless backstraps out of larger jackrabbits, either the blacktails or the or the antelope jacks. Right. Uh, and then I find those are absolutely perfect for Chinese food. So use them as a, wherever you'd use beef, you'd use that backstrap, and it's fantastic. Nice. Yeah, you know that's another animal that's that's kind of misunderstood. Um, and as you know, our, our mutual friend John O'Dell and myself, we won the first backcountry hunters and anglers. I'm sorry, forgive me. Second consecutive year for Arizona backcountry hunters and anglers in our national rendezvous mm-hmm. cookoff, and we I was did a judge that. for that last year. I, yeah, I know, and we didn't win that one, Hank. Yes, it was all about execution. Uh, no. All right. <laughs> I got it. The Minnesotans just had better execution. <laughs> you know, those guys. I, your ideas were great, yeah, but yeah. not everything was pulled off. I know. It was good, though. I still think it was delicious. Yeah, it I'm was good. Yeah, I think you were second or third, right? Yeah, we were second. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, we really wanted to bring home that trifecta in number three. But, you know. Um, well, you're, you've, you're, the, your way is clear. I'm not judging <laughs> this coming year. The, uh, <laughs> the year before... Uh, we did do jackrabbit, um, and and we won that one. So it's nice to win with an animal that's so kind of, I guess, poo pooed on by by a lot of the public. But right. they're delicious, especially the antelope. Um, there is, yeah, there's just nothing wrong with that animal. They're so good, and you get a ton of meat off of them too. You do, you do. I felt I fed uh, uh, Randy Newberg and like eight other guys with two of them. Yeah, I believe it. They're big animals. You break them down just like you would a deer. Yeah. But yeah, I didn't go after them this year. We had that, uh, that yeah, that fever, right? Through and I just kind of let it go. But I'd, I'd like yep. to get back down there and do it again. They're just such impressive beasts. And, you know, if you haven't seen them, the first time you see them loping through a, a you know, a desert flat, you just, yeah, it's, it's shocking how large they are. Yeah, I mean, I've mistaken them for deer when they're in the grass. You can just see their ears. Oh, yeah, I saw one bedded down. And I thought I was looking at a deer for a while. Yeah, I was. I felt silly when I found out it was a rabbit, but it was, you know, I saw its haunches. What are they like? Fifteen pounds? I don't. They're big. Uh, I know that. But big ass rabbit. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah, they're they're delicious. I will say that I notice a difference in the flavor between them and black table. I'm sorry, black tails. And those are the only two species I've eaten. Um, the black tails are good, but the, uh, the antelope are exceptional. They're a bit good. funkier. Yeah. Just a little bit. I agree. I find the same thing with, with coots. They just have a little bit of that funkiness. Yeah. That's the fat. The fat on coots is, uh, tastes like the bottom of a pond smells. <laughs> um, yeah, going off your advice, I like to test everything, but I, uh, yeah, we're jumping ahead to waterfowl. Um, I, I made a gumbo with uh, a bunch of breasts of some coots I shot. Um, the gumbo was delicious, um, I, but I can't imagine you throwing any meat in there not being good. Then I took all of those legs and I think mm-hmm. I just pan fried them um, and kind of Del- disgusting. Well, <laughs> that's the thing though. I don't. I noticed the swampiness and, but I don't know if that's because that's what I've always heard. So I know it's, it's intramuscular fat in the legs. I've, I've I've tried six ways to Sunday to make coot legs, not taste like a pond and it doesn't work. They were a little pondy. I served it. And they're incredibly stringy. Who've never heard that. And they, they devoured them. So 
how, what, how did you deal with all the sinews? They have the same amount of sinews as a pheasant. Yeah. But, but honestly, one quarter the size. I think I braised them for a while, honestly. I forget. I and apologize. just pulled all the bones? Yeah. I did that with some Sandhill crane legs this year. And man, I've never seen tendons like oh, that. Yeah. That was good. They, well, they came out wild easy, turkey has but... Wild turkey has the same. Yeah. Yeah. Well. One of these days, we're going to get that ghoul's tag. Oh, I know. Me too. I think I have like five points. Yeah. I've been saving, um, and then I blew them all this year um, on a Merriam's, uh, which I'm a little ashamed of myself. But I'd been hunting turkeys every year with with archer equipment, and I was just getting it handed to me, and I'd like to shoot a turkey. So <laughs> so I got a tag. Well, uh, back to small game. Um, just just for the sake of announcing it, um, squirrel meat is the most delicious small game in the world, in my opinion. I like rabbits but I don't get excited about them. I love squirrel. Yeah. Squirrels. If you've never out there have had it, the best way I can describe it is it's a lot like the oyster on a Turkey. Mm -hmm. So that's that little oval of meat right next to the ball and socket joint of the, of the hind leg on a, on on any bird, but it's quite big in a Turkey and it's, so it's dark ish meat and it's very dense and very flavorful. Yeah. I feel that way about the entire squirrel. I just think they're delicious. Uh, you've seen that meat eater shirt where it's it's got all the squirrel broke down and it just also has squirrel meat. There's no specific <laughs> It's one of my favorite shirts. I've got one that Hunt to Eat makes that has all of the different species for the squirrel. Mm-hmm. It's a, their squirrel hey, slam shirt. I played a role in designing <laughs> that shirt, you know. Oh, awesome. <laughs> um, all right. Let's, uh, let's talk about waterfowl just a little bit. Um, sure. we, we already talked about coot. Um, I think they're great. I'll probably shoot a few every year just to throw those little breasts and gumbo, but I, you know, the legs, yeah, I'll give it to you. They're swampy, a little swampy, but, uh, you know, I would, I wouldn't throw it all out with a wash because of that. I, I think they're a worthy, worthy animal to pursue and worthy of the table if, if done right. But with that said, you know, they're, they're no pintail either. No, but, uh, my favorite things to do with ducks, uh, is, well, really I like to smoke them. Um, I like to pan sear legs. Uh, I like to smoke whole pluck ducks. Uh, some buddies and I made a bunch of sausage one year that was exceptional, but that's about the extent of my, my knowledge with waterfowl. I, I haven't gone much farther with it. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of ways. I mean, I feel like feel like Bubba from Forrest Gump. Um, I mean, it's just literally thousands and thousands and thousands of ways to cook yeah. pretty much everything but the quack. So I think the first thing to to consider if you're a duck hunter or a goose hunter is to pluck or to skin. Mm-hmm. And in general, and these are vast generalizations because I can think of exceptions to every single one of them, you skin sea ducks and you skin most divers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you pluck the rest. Uh, and so the, so that of course has regional and dietary kind of, uh, the, the cool thing about duck hunting is it's so variable is there's a great, huge number of species. I think there's 23 species that we hunt in North America and in every, even within a species, the dietary choices of that particular species change depending on where they live, because, you know, obviously there's not rice everywhere. Um, so you kind of have to know locally or try 
locally, you know, what's a good bird and what's not a good bird. Because I mean, as I'm saying this, I'm going through my head of thinking dozens of dozens of weird exceptions, like, you know, the, the, the lesser scop, the bluebills that we hunted in the Delta marshes of Manitoba were significantly better than the mallards mm-hmm. skin on um, greater bluebills in San Francisco Bay when they've been eating eelgrass are okay, some of the yeah. greatest birds you're ever going to eat. So uh, widgeon, which are normally some of the greatest birds you're ever going to eat are absolutely vile on the Oregon coast. So, and again and again and again, so the, you, you do have uh, quite the nut to crack with waterfowl um, to determine, you know, if you're going to miss or, or some, some really great glories because all of this is because unlike virtually every animal that we hunt, they're fat mm-hmm. or can be fat or can be very fat. So um, in general, there are almost no exceptions to this. Pintails, green wing or blue wing teal, wood ducks, speckle goose, and canvas backs. Those birds won't steer you wrong. You should pluck those all the time. Uh, uh, West Coast brants also. So those are all birds that up and down the, the flyaways, no matter where, where you are, they're not going to steer you wrong. For the most part, mallards will not either. But I've seen mallards eating dead salmon. So, and I've had mallards with tadpoles in their crops. Yeah. So they, they're, they're real generalists. In general, um, while the, the, the gut cavities of a Canada goose smell like the worst, they're just terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the meat itself is great. So if you can bring yourself to, to pluck Canada geese, um, and I'm not saying all of them, but one or two, cause it's a pain in the ass. Um, you will be rewarded because the, typically they're just gra- It's like grass fed beef, right? Cause they're grass eaters. And, you're going to basically have grass fed beef with a layer of fat on it. And, and it's very, very good. Snow geese, uh, the meat is fantastic, but they're often very skinny and they're difficult to pluck. So unless you're in a situation where um, you find fat ones, like, you know, Saskatchewan in September, for example, pluck the hell out of them because they're amazing. Yeah. But typically they're not. So <clears throat> when you have the skin and fat on, on waterfowl, you have an entirely different set of options than if it's just skinned. Mm-hmm. So if it's just skinned, it's effectively beef where the breast is like a steak and the legs and wings are like brisket. So slow and low for the legs and, and hot and fast for the, for the breast meat. Yeah. You know, I, I've, I, I've said all I've really done is smoke and pants here. And I guess that's not true. Um, I've, I've made some corned beef, some pastrami, things like that. Um, I've con feed them. Uh, and that's delicious. Um, and, and I've, I've plucked nearly, well, I've plucked every puddle duck I've ever brought home. I've only skinned a few divers. Um, I will say I tried to pluck a swan and that proved to be an impossibility for me anyway. I, I soldiered through it because you get one a year. (laughs) I tried and I'm not going to. And I'm just, well, you they're, just, they're tough. You know, the first thousand are hard. Okay. <laughs> and, like, I mean, I, I don't know. Holly and I have plucked hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of waterfowl. Yeah. And so when it comes time to like a big Canada goose or a swan, you're like, all right, here we go. It wow. sucks. I, I find next time you get in that situation with a goose or, or a swan or something big like that, Holly likes these really cool, they're like, they're little work gloves that are regular kind of disposable gloves. We could, they have all those little rubbery things on mm-hmm. them. 
for for you know traction. Yeah, I know what you're talking try about. those. Okay. I I find that on these big birds, I don't really use them for ducks, but I definitely use them for big birds, and it helps a lot. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to take that long neck and do a sausage, and I think that exactly. idea came from you. Probably. But man, I, I could not <laughs> get them clean. I just couldn't. You just it's patience. Yeah. Okay. And and also, I mean, I used a uh, wax method. Mm-hmm. So you, in, with a case of a swan, you have to dip parts of the of the bird in the in the melted wax because yeah. you can't. I mean, nobody's got a a tub of melted wax that big. Um, I mean, maybe somebody does, but nobody I know. Right. So you just you dip the neck and you peel that and you dip the wings and peel that and it's, yeah, it's a pain in the ass, but you get one a year and it's a showcase. Oh yeah, it was it was a big deal and uh, fortunately for me in Nevada, uh, we got two each. So I got ah. I got two to work with. Um, one was clearly older. One you know not so much visually, but when it came to processing them, it was it was clear one was older, one was younger. Um, I con feed all four legs together. Uh, and one was done like eight hours before the other one. Wow. Well, because swans can live forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know exactly how long, but I guarantee you they live at least 20 years. Yeah. Because it, why would they be any different from geese? Right. And I believe the oldest goose ever recovered, you know, for the band was something like 30. Mm-hmm. All right. So stepping back just a minute and, uh, I, you know, I got a lot of questions from, from my friends and colleagues that we're probably not going to have time to go over, but, but I'm going to try and intersperse them here. One of them was, you know, what for your average hunter or even your new hunter, you know, for these groups of animals that we've talked about. So let's, let's say a deer or an elk, a squirrel or a rabbit or, or a duck or a goose. What is one approachable recipe that, that you would recommend for each of those groups? Um, well, with, with waterfowl, uh, skin on, skin on breasts. Cause even if you don't, uh, pluck the whole animal, uh, you can, you can pluck just the breast area and cut those off. And because that effectively gives you a, a, a steak with a hat made of bacon because, mm-hmm. you know, the skin and fat is crisps up and you cook the, the meat just medium rare and it's, it's, everyone's going to like that. Yeah. Um, I would say with a deer, uh, cut your back straps into lengths, not stakes. So lengths maybe you know ten inches long, maybe a bit, maybe more or less. And if you, the easiest thing to do is to reverse sear that. So you stick a thermometer in the center, and you bring it to temperature either in a low oven or a smoker is be- is better um, to about 110, and then you pull it out and then you sear the outside to get a nice bark on the outside. And then that's, that's, that's an unbelievable cut of meat yeah. that everybody's going to like. And it, what it does is it prevents you from having a, the problem of black and blue, which is mm-hmm. if you take that piece of backstrap and then just cook it in a pan, sure, you can, you can cook it perfectly like that, but it's a lot harder than if you reverse sear it. Right. Can, can I add one uh, element to that? You bet. So, is something we haven't gotten into, but is stock um, and, and bone stock and keeping all of those bones from these big animals mm-hmm. um, and making a, a good, rich stock. Then after you've, you know, seared that, that back strap in a, in a cast iron and sliced it up, you take that stock, reduce it down to a glaze, which is just this thick, rich, 
unbelievably flavorful sauce and you can pour it over the top of that and oh my it's good yep yep and if you add a little red wine to it that's a classic french jus oh, i didn't even know that so that's that would be that would be a uh, super easy and, and everybody's going to like that for a big game um uh you know for say quail well that was i would that was the I next would say tank we haven't gotten quail yet quail Quail are hard to pluck. Yeah. I pluck them anyway because I'm just good at it. Um, but let's assume you have skinned quail. I really like just a, a really simple Greek kind of just simmer them in, in a little stock and olive oil mm-hmm. and, and a lot of olive oil, like a half a cup and, and with oregano and lemon and garlic and just until they're tender and then just serve them with crusty bread that's incredibly simple and really satisfying, and you don't have to pluck the bird for that. Nice. I, I like to spatchcock them, do them on the mm-hmm. grill with your southern mustard-based barbecue sauce. Um, but I think the South Carolina stuff. Oh, it's good. I, I the key there is not overcooking them; they dry out real fast. Um, they're still going to. Thus, good. the olive oil in that braise mm-hmm. the Greek dish yep. because it's 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 your insurance policy. Yeah, I mean, and that is a thing that like just to come back to thirty thousand feet again. Um, we talked a little bit about the chaos that is, that is wild game cooking, mm-hmm. which is to say that, you know, you have differences in diet and species and age, but you, you also have no internal fat in any of these animals. So the reason why pork and beef are so easy to cook is because they have marbling, they have internal fat, and that is an insurance policy against overcooking. So if you don't have that, this is why my my I urge you to to if you're worried is to undercook things because the temperature can go radically rapidly fast from way undercooked to way overcooked in something that doesn't have internal fat because there's no the fat is kind of a is an insulator as we all know um, and when you don't have that your your internal temperature can act in a way that's not linear. It's not quite logarithmic, but I mean, it. you can go, I've seen meat go from 110 to 140 in a, in a matter of seconds. Yeah. Yeah. So those small birds, they are particularly difficult in this arena. Um, I, I feel like it can be 30 seconds between having a perfectly cooked little dove on the grill and then something that's dry and livery. But, uh, you know, for me, I, I feel like I've gotten better at it just because I've done it a lot. But did you have advice for somebody that's, again, just getting into this and brought a bunch of doves home and you want them to have a good experience the first time? Yeah, if they're going to make something like a popper where it's just the breast, um, you want to put those on the grill cold. Because the coat, it's a very small piece of meat. This is also true with like arachera or or fajita or something like that. Any thin piece of meat, you know, could be could be, you know, uh, sharp-tailed grouse breast or quail or whatever. That you're gonna want that to come on cold mm-hmm. because by the time you get a nice grill mark or by the time you get you know the, a good amount of smoke, if that's what you're looking for, if the meat was at room temperature, it's gonna overcook and be livery. And, and so that by bringing it out of a 36 degree fridge, that really helps a lot because you actually want dove to be at the very least pink in the center, if not medium rare. Um, and so that will, that will buy you some time. Well, all right. Stepping back. Um, cause I don't, I don't want to leave this, this 
gaping hole in my opinion. What is your one suggested go-to recipe for rabbit or squirrel? I mean, you can't go wrong with Brunswick stew. Yeah. Um, and that's a old Virginia stew with lots of vegetables and, you know, and multiple, often multiple meats. Okay. Um, I so that's, it. that's, that's one way. I mean, that is this, if there is a single most important squirrel recipe in the United States, it's Brunswick stew. Nice. Um, second would be squirrel and dumplings or rabbit and dumplings. Uh, this is another important Southern Southern recipe of effectively like think chicken noodle soup only with, you know, squirrel or rabbit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, depending on your family, you either do drop dumplings, which uh, are little, little teeny cake, cake flour and, and, you know, like Bisquick with uh, self-rising flour. And um, uh, those kind of, and they expand like crazy on the top. So they float on the top or there's something called a cat head dumpling, which is essentially uh, really thick sheets of pasta that's homemade. Um, I happen to be partial to the to the drop biscuits, but some people like those those heavier cat head things. And it's that's basically a way to bulk up that stew. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very important dish for for that. I mean, I've got dozens and dozens of my own, uh, but those are those are recipes that use those animals that are very um, that that have cultural relevance to the United yeah. States. Yeah. And I, I like that. Um, you know, I think you, you saw on my Instagram page, um, I had shot a, a Quatamundi, um, oh, two yeah. days ago and you know, I've seen lots of these animals and, and they're magnificent and they're not your traditional bring home and eat type of animal. So I, I've, you know, I have no reason to shoot them if I'm not going to eat them, but I've always thought that they would be an interesting meal. Um, so I decided to finally take one and I was going to make tamales cause I've never made tamales. And I thought that would be an interesting thing to do with this animal. And unfortunately I lost it out of my pack and I tried to recover it and it was a long, you know, all day long bushwhack and there was just no oh, finding bummer. it. But so yeah, I'm very disappointed in myself that I, I lost that animal and, and potentially wasted it. But it was an interesting animal, but I, I like I like cooking wild game and tying in some kind of relevant aspect of its habitat, the culture it comes from, something like that. I just, I think it adds to it. I think it's fun. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I do that a lot and, and I have, I have dozens of dishes on, on Hunter Angler Gardener Cook that are, um, uh, let's see, proudly irreproducible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, I have a dish called Fancy Pigeon, which is um, a really delicious dish, a bandtail pigeon, with the things that it eats and the things that are the environment in which I hunted it. Um, and it's really a eulogy piece because um, that area where I used to hunt bandtail pigeons burned to the ground in, in one of the fires last wow. year. So it'll never be the same in my lifetime. And and But it's it's understanding what the animal eats and where it is. And I, I did another dish called walleye minot uh, after walleye fishing in Northern North Dakota. And, you know, you can incorporate the cultural relevance to it as well in the sense that you can use the crops that that region is good at. You can use the, the fats or the flowers or the sugars or the oils that are culturally relevant to that area. So, 
maybe it's butter instead of olive oil. Maybe it's barley mm-hmm. instead of rice. Maybe it's, it's, you know, beet sugar, uh, or, or maple syrup, as opposed to say, you know, if I was in Arizona, I might use prickly pear syrup or mesquite bean syrup. Yeah. And I might use, might use, uh, you know, pork lard as a fat. I might use, um, you know, choya buds or, or some of the ingredients that are in the environment in Arizona. And, and that allows you as a cook to create, this is, we're getting a little chefy now, but mm-hmm. this allows you as a cook to create a dish that has never been made before. And that's virtually, um, that is, that is, it's a rare thing in this world yeah. where you can create something that's never been made. Right. And you know, there's, there's a certain pride. I mean, it's, it's something more than just fun. Uh, but unfortunately mm-hmm. I, d- I don't know if I have the words or I don't know if the words exist to explain it, but there's something very satisfying about going out, harvesting some meat and uh, harvesting other ingredients while you're in that same habitat and, and bringing it home and creating a dish. Uh, it's yeah. Just, it's I mean, you guys satisfying. have done that on your, uh, on your, your entries in the BHA mm-hmm. contest. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, I urge you to continue because the, the Sonoran Desert in that area has so many of the oh, we're fortunate we have some really amazing ingredients. Yeah, um, but where you ran into it last year and where every cook runs into it, myself included, is that your idea has to be technically sound, and and in very in a lot of cases you have to test these recipes over and over again um, because you know, it's got to taste good. It's got to be craveable. And the, the problem with this, when you're doing that is in many cases, you only have X amount of that ingredient. And so your ability to really test it and really work it and do it over and over again is limited. I've had dishes where it's taken me years to publish it because I only get a small amount of whatever this rare ingredient is every given year. And so I'm like, I will keep notes in a notebook. Like, okay, I'm going to make this dish again. This is the problem of of it last time. How do we fix this? And you think very long and hard about how to solve whatever the problem was in iteration one. And and then you figure it out and then you try it again and hopefully you get it right. But if you don't, back to the drawing board. Right. Yeah, that's just a good little window into how far folks can take this stuff. You know, Mm -hmm. we've kind of, we've kept it basic here today and, you know, but we're already up on the hour and it's, it's just reminding me that an hour is not long enough to cover this stuff. And and that brought no. to my attention, something that I failed to mention, and that's your podcast because you have a fantastic podcast and you can go back and you can get full length episode on each of these things we've talked about. Um, yeah. And just do yeah. A deep I mean, dive. I, I do a, uh, my podcast is called hunt, gather, talk. And it's available wherever you get your podcasts. And Holly and I have actually started uh, an old school blog called To the Bone. And that's on Substack. And Substack is a great avenue for real writing. And if if you followed Hunter Angler Gardner Cook for years and years and years, you know that, God, it's almost a decade ago, it was a writer's blog. I mean, yeah, I had recipes, but I wrote essays every month. And... It was it was an important way to kind of talk about the bigger questions like like Holly just wrote an essay called, well, we use the word kill because that's we kill animals. It's, it's just no there's no varnishing it out. We don't harvest. You harvest a tomato. You know, you 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 know, you kill a deer. And and so where we get to talk about the big questions and that's the we just started that to the bone on Substack um, just a couple of months ago. And great it's been a great, great 
out uh, a great outlet for us to talk about the kind of the bigger things, you know. And then the podcast is just great. The podcast is fun because I do seasons and it keeps me sane and I try to keeps me focused. The season two uh, was all about Upland and small game. That was kind of a, a podcast in conjunction with pheasant quail cottontail. And there's in each season has over 20 episodes to it. And the current one that we're in the middle of is, is the one that goes along with hook line and supper. And uh, it's all fish and seafood. And the one, the episode that is coming out next, uh, which we, I just finished uh, editing is about fish intelligence. So I found the world's leading expert on fish intelligence. He's an Australian. And we spent an hour and a half talking about how much smarter fish are than we think they are. And it's, it's just really wow. great in depth, kind of geeky, yeah. but, but fun conversations. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think people tend to gloss over that sometimes, uh, you know, the farther away a species is from ourselves, we, we tend to ignore any kind of intellect or, uh, dare I say emotion or anything involved with that mm-hmm. animal. But I, I used to do crayfish on, on a, on a biology level back East. I really dug, you know, getting into looking for different species and there's still a number of species to be described out there. So it, it's just really fun. But if you keep those little dudes in a tank, it, it doesn't take you long at all to catch on just how smart they are. Um, they're thinking about every move they make. It's very interesting. Right. And it's, it's, you know, I, we did episodes about, you know, I've been a professional deckhand and some of my friends, I got some of my friends who've also been pro deckhands on and we just did like, okay guys, if you've ever been a client on a charter boat or a party boat, this is, this is what we think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're not all sciencey. Some of them are really just, right. Just laugh riots. No, I, I've listened to a great many, if not all, and I've enjoyed everyone I've listened to. Thank you. Yeah. You have great guests. Well, Hank, um, I, I want to respect your time uh, and I appreciate you giving me so much of it. And man, uh, let me personally thank you for all the work you've done because I have benefited from it greatly. Um, and, and that's not an exaggeration. I've utilized your work, um, you know, to, to my fullest extent anyway. And uh, I love that it's there. I love that you make it so accessible um, and it's just so well done. So thank you for that. Absolutely, Golly, man. You, you could, I could talk about this stuff all day. There's, there's so many different directions to go. And I have so many questions for you personally uh, that I run into, but you know, that brings up uh, your Facebook page again. Um, Cause that's a great place to go with questions when you have them regarding, well, you know, wild game. And while Hank might be uh, our fearless leader, there's a lot of people out there that, that know how to handle this stuff and they're on that page and they're happy to answer your questions. Yep. Yep. That's why, that's why we're the Borg. Like I, I, I learn stuff on that page almost every day. I bet. Yeah. There's no place else like it. Yeah. Well, get on there folks and uh, answer those questions and, and Hank will let you in. All right. All right, Hank. Thank you for your time. And I, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy your upcoming summer. Thanks a lot. You too. All right. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Hank Shaw. I know I did, and I hope you learned some stuff. And I hope you will utilize those resources that Hank offers to to the fullest extent. Um, buy those books. Those books are 
they're excellent and they belong in every hunter and angler's kitchen. You know, I have a firmly held belief that good wild game cooking is a conduit to positive feelings from the general public surrounding hunting and angling. And we need those feelings because we want to keep this, this lifestyle that we value so much around into the foreseeable future. So our children and our grandchildren will have those tangible connections and they will be the ones willing to stand up and, and fight for the conservation of our wildlife and our habitat. So utilize that game meat, that hard earned game meat to its fullest extent. Share it with friends and family. Tell the stories of how you procured it. Um, that stuff matters. It matters a lot. So. Until next time, this has been the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. Please reach out to me at podcast at azwildlife.org. Thanks so much, and I'll see you in two weeks.